Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning. We come by the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom we send in the likeness of human flesh as the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, who would take away our sins. Lord, we praise you for the faithfulness of Christ and the perfection and completion of the work of redemption. And we stand today not condemned but justified, even though we are still sinners, even though we struggle with our sin. But we know that because of Christ, we have been reconciled to you. We have peace with you. We have overcome sin. We have overcome death. We have overcome the judgment unto death. And Lord, we pray that you bring this truth to all your people, all who profess Christ, that if they are hearing about Christ and if what they are hearing is not about redemption, then they are not hearing about Christ. Both Christ was given that he may redeem his people from sin. And we pray and thank you for this glorious and wonderful gospel. And may you cause your people to love this gospel because that's the only hope. May you cause your people to hear the things of Christ, the spiritual things. And may your Holy Spirit teach us this morning. And may he teach all those who shall ever listen to this message. Our Lord, may you bring understanding to us all. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the book of John, chapter 5. And today we are going to be working our way through verses 10 to 18, but mostly 10 to 16, because part of 17 and 18 is more relevant to what we shall be talking about next week. That's an introduction to the larger discourse by the Lord of his person, saying that he is equal to God the Father. He does whatever he sees the Father doing. And of course, the Jews were not excited to hear that. The Jews were not excited to hear that. And we, by the grace of God, have been given the ears to hear such things and to understand them for what the Lord intended for us to understand. That Jesus is the Son of God. He is more than the Son of Mary. He is God in the flesh. And because He is God in the flesh, He is coming and interpreting the institutions of God for us so that we may have a proper understanding of what it is that God intended by all the things that he had given in his word. And that is why we hear the account of John tying the healing of the man and saying, oh, by the way, this was on the Sabbath. This was on the Sabbath. So the idea of the Sabbath is not just because Jesus wants to start trouble. Jesus has to teach them what the Sabbath is all about. And he also uses the occasion to explain himself to them and say, guess what? 
I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. I am the one who gave the Sabbath anyway. I have the right to tell you what is important to do on this particular day. And with that, our title then is The Sabbath, the Gospel, and Jesus. And that will be part one because we are going to develop more understanding next week on the Sabbath, the Gospel, and Jesus again as the Lord expands this. Or we, we can have the title, it's a long title, unusual title, but it's an appropriate title. It is the Sabbath. Pick up your pallet and walk anyway. We are not going to be bound by man-made rules on account of what Christ has done. So this is where we are. The Lord has gone back to Jerusalem where on his entrance to the temple he passed by the sheep gate where we are told there was a pool called Bethesda. And this pool had five colonnades or porches. And in them, John told us, lay a great multitude of the sick, the blind, the lamb, and the paralyzed who were desperately seeking help and were at different points of death as it were. They were ready to finally succumb to death if nothing happened to them. And this was laid for us as a high-definition picture to indicate the spiritual condition of all men after the fall. This is what has become of all men spiritually because of the sin of Adam. That all men born after Adam are the fallen, and because they are fallen spiritually, they are the sick, blind, lame and paralyzed and because of this spiritual condition they are unable to help themselves unless someone of the stature of Jesus comes and helps them and as we learn from the words of the sick man say I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up so all men need help if Jesus does not show up, they are going to die, even though the means of grace is right there. So we learn from this that the true confession, the true confession of a sinner is that they acknowledge that they are sick. And secondly, that they need someone to help them to the means of grace. Sinners need to be awakened to their sinful condition and to the reality that once they have been so awakened, they have no ability to help themselves. You cannot come to Christ and still think that you have ability to save yourself or you add something to your salvation. If you come to Christ, the realization is you can't help yourself. You need Christ to help you. So then, regeneration, regeneration, the new birth. You must be born again. That experience, that work of the Holy Spirit awakens each and every person who is being saved to their desperate sinful condition. It awakens us to the realization that we have no power 
in ourselves to help our condition. And thus, a new birth causes us to say we need someone else. We need someone else and not ourselves if we are to be saved. And that is a true confession of one who has been taught by God. But Jesus said, you shall be taught of God. And anyone who has been taught of my father will come to me and they will hear me. So that's the true confession. And anyone who has that true confession of the Holy Spirit, the true confession of Jesus is the one who enters into God's rest, is the one who enters into God's Sabbath. So we are going to be working our theology about the Sabbath and what Jesus was saying and the New Testament understanding of what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath is not about picking sticks or not picking up sticks. There is a spiritual understanding that the Holy Spirit has given us in the book of Hebrews of what says the Lord about the Sabbath. So John is careful to remind us that this healing happened on a Sabbath. And he was pointing us to our need of a spiritual rest. He was pointing us to our need of a spiritual rest and to point us to the one who brings us to that kind of spiritual rest. Jesus being the bringer and the Lord of that rest. So the Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem to teach us this reality, but he also has a mission to declare to the people who he is. The Lord is going to use this situation, as we shall see mostly next week, to make some really high Christological statements, that is, statements about himself. He makes some really high Christological statements and comments that when the Jews had them, they're like, we have to kill this guy. They were left with no option but to want to kill him because of the things that he was saying. But as the testimony of John in the beginning of John chapter 1 was, the light came to the darkness and darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness tried to hold Christ. The darkness tried to put out the light that was in Christ, but Christ was not going to go by the terms of darkness. He was going to go by the terms of light. Jesus was the one who was in the driver's seat. So the Lord comes and he heals this man on a Sabbath day. Yes, it was on the Sabbath day. But this was not necessarily to drive the Jews mad. It was not necessarily designed to drive the Jews mad, but to teach them the truth about God's salvation and what the Sabbath stood for. And Jesus comes and he interprets the Sabbath for us and he says, guess what? I have overall authority over all the things of God. And as, we, as you may have heard from the other Gospels, the other accounts where the Lord had done some work according to the Jews, every time the Lord healed someone on the Sabbath, they interpreted that as doing work on the Sabbath and they were mad at him and they were trying to put him out. But we hear in Matthew 12, Matthew 12 verses 1 to 14, 
we have a greater account of the Lord's encounter with the Jews on the Sabbath. And the Lord does give us some understanding about what the Sabbath is all about. And he gives a defense of himself and his disciples for their actions on the Sabbath. And that is telling for us. And the reason why I say that is we are trying to build the background for us to have a proper understanding of what the Sabbath was all about. As you know, there are a number of people, a number of churches, professing Christians, who say they observe the Sabbath. And they think, if anyone does not observe the Sabbath, as they do, they are not Christians. The problem is, they don't know what they're talking about, because they don't understand the Scriptures. So let's go to Matthew, one, uh, sorry, Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14, and that will give us some background to the Sabbath and Jesus' understanding of it. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14, this is what it reads. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I said to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went in, into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a ship? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than ship? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched, stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So from this story, the Jews charged against the Lord and his disciples was, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And this is where they are coming from. They are coming from Exodus 20. Verses 8 to 11. Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11. This is what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter. Your male servant or your female servant. Or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And also, if you go and read the Old Testament, you're going to find a similar statement in Jeremiah 17, 21 to 22, on the observance of the Sabbath. But this is what has happened over the course of time. The Pharisees had added by their zeal all kinds of regulations and technicalities that made life difficult and burdensome. They had defined and redefined work in such a way that no good could be done without breaking the Sabbath. And this was not good. They were putting burdens on people. And the Lord set, to, set things straight. So this is what is happening in the account that Matthew records for us in Matthew 12. The disciples of the Lord got hungry and they were plucking and eating wheat on the Sabbath. So according to the rules of the Pharisees, just plucking wheat from its stem was working. That was ripping. Rubbing the wheat heads between their palms was threshing. Just doing this. You are threshing. And blowing away the chaff was like winnowing. You are winnowing. And this contrived definition of the Pharisees, the disciples were condemned as breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus' defense for his disciples was threefold. And this is very, very important. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests. And this story is coming from 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. David and his men were hungry and they were running away from King Saul and they desperately need something to eat. And David went to the priest and the priest gave him bread. Bread that was only by the law, according to Leviticus 24.9, bread that was only supposed to be eaten by the priest. And Jesus says, look at David. He went and ate bread that was not lawful for him to eat by the priest. But God did not condemn him. God did not kill David for doing that. And guess what? I am the greater son of David. I am David's Lord. And if I am greater than David and David was not condemned for eating bread on the Sabbath, guess what? I am still lawful in everything that I'm doing. And then he gives his second defense, his second argument. He says in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Wow. Jesus actually said the priests break the Sabbath and are innocent. They break the Sabbath. They're supposed to be guilty, but Jesus says they break the Sabbath, but they're still innocent. And this is coming from Numbers 28, verses 9 and 10. Numbers 28, verses 9 and 10 says, On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish 
and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and this drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and this drink offering. What that is saying is the priests are being instructed to make an offering and this is a description of the kind of offering that they have to offer on the Sabbath. And the Lord comes and pulls that out and says, these guys are working and they are working by God's commandment and they are innocent. So if the priests were working according to God's commandment and they were innocent, guess what? Jesus, the true high priest of God, has the right to work on the Sabbath or any other day and still be innocent. Verse 6 to 8, listen to this. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus says, look at the story of David and who David was. Look at the priesthood of the whole temple system. Look at them and how God did not condemn them. These are God's people. These are people who are following God's ordinances. They were not condemned. But I'm here to tell you something. A greater than Moses is here. A greater than David is here. And the whole temple and the whole priesthood was a type and shadow of me. A greater than the temple is here. Christ is saying, I am greater than the priesthood. I am greater than the sacrifices that were there. And if the shadows were considered to be innocent, then the substance has to be sinless and innocent. So those who were lesser than Christ were not condemned, and therefore Christ himself cannot be condemned. But even more, the Lord comes and he says, the Sabbath was set that man may show grace and compassion. The Sabbath was meant for man to do good. It was meant for man to do good, and the Pharisees were not understanding the Old Testament scriptures right. The Lord always desired mercy, compassion, and justice, and not the continual offerings and sacrifices. And even in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I am weary of your sacrifices. I'm tired of them. I'm not interested in the blood of bulls and gods. I'm interested in you demonstrating my compassion, justice, mercy, and love. So going from there, having made a defense against the Pharisees, the Lord went into the synagogue where there was a man with a withered hand and the Jews tested him again to see if he would break the commandment. And of course, the Lord, never shying away from controversy, he healed the man. He healed the man with a withered hand and he made his theological argument and he says to them, well, you guys have your priorities upside down. Which of you, if you have 
your sheep and it needs to be rescued on the Sabbath day, doesn't rescue it. And if you have the sense of rescuing an animal, what more of a human being who is more valuable in the sight of God? And we see even today people doing the same thing. They cry a river over the loss of a pet than the loss of human life. Some people live insurance money. They leave a huge inheritance for their pets than they ever leave any human being. Why? Because they have their spiritual priorities upside down. If they understood the truth about God, the truth about life, they would not be making those kind of decisions. And Jesus says that has to change. That has to change. So the Lord is in trouble. And the Jews knew that he was going to heal the man. But when we come to the story that we have in John 5, it's no different story from all the encounters that the Lord has always had with the Jews about healing on the Sabbath. The Lord was healing people on the Sabbath. And he wasn't doing any work. He only spoke. And he didn't even speak that many words. He said to the man, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. He didn't even do any work. He just spoke. And he gets in trouble for that. He gets in trouble for healing the man with the withered hand. He just told the man, stretch out your hand. That's all there is to it. But he gets in trouble for that. And we see, as we learn from the scriptures, that the two issues that the Jews had with Jesus were healing on the Sabbath and his claim of deity. Healing on the Sabbath and his claim that he was God. These are the two issues that take us right to the cross. They were plotting. They wanted to take him out because they thought he was a lawbreaker. He was doing work and encouraging people to do work on the Sabbath. So, back to our story in John 5, and we pick up from verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who met me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, uh, they asked him, verse 12, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? The statement here by the Jews is very stern and condemning. This is what they are saying. They are saying, it is the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. What's wrong with you? What are you not getting about the Sabbath? Don't you know that it is not permissible by the law for you to carry any kind of burden? The Sabbath was the Lord's day and not a secular day. And in the interpretation of the Jews with all the laws that they put in, 
they even forbade the doing of any works of justice or any acts of mercy. Because if you look at what the Lord was doing, there was nothing bad that the Lord ever did to anybody. He was helping people who were desperately in need of help. And if anything, this was time for them to say, wow, look at what this man is doing. He is doing good on the Sabbath. They would have appreciated that. Seeing all these people, because if you look at the story of these people, the ones that the Lord helped were very desperate people. And these were people that they used to know about. They had been around the temple for a long, long time. And instead of coming to him and say, praise God for you for the work that you have done, they wanted to put him out instead. That's depravity. That's the sin of man. But don't miss this statement here uh, in verse 11. The statement by the man who was healed. He says to the Jews, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. The man was the one who was being blamed by the Jews for carrying the pallet. But the man instead says, No, 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 no. It's not me. It's not me. Let me tell you. It's the man who made me well. He did not want to carry the burden of the blame. Instead, he laid the blame on Jesus and said, It's Jesus' fault. It is he who commanded me to carry my pallet on the Sabbath. It is he who had spoken to me and told me to do it. So, Look for that man. Don't talk to me. But let us not miss another point that the Holy Spirit is weaving for us through the testimony of the man. The man emphasizes, listen to this, the man emphasizes that the man who spoke to him, that is Jesus, did a good work by healing him. And thus, he could not have been an evil man. Because if you listen to his statement in verse 11, he says, He who made me well, he who made me well, he is making an emphasis of the work. He who made me well, and if he made me well, he can't be a bad guy. As you guys are trying to suggest to me, he can't be an evil man. He could not have just broken the Sabbath day woefully. He is a good man. But if you can find him, if you can find him, do whatever you want with him. The, the, the Pharisees said to him in verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Hear the question by the Jews. It was a condemning question, a condescending statement towards Jesus. They said, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? They are saying, who is this lawless and foolish person who gave you such an order 
on a Sabbath day to disobey the law of God. And not only that, that statement is a very threatening statement. They are saying, who is he and where is he? And if we can lay our hands on him, we are going to beat the light out of him. He can't be doing this. And he can't be encouraging others to break the commandments. So the Jews sought to find out who this man was who was leading others astray. But unfortunately, the man who was healed did not know who Jesus was. Jesus had purposefully slipped away whilst there was a crowd. That's what John tells us. Whilst the crowd was there and talking, most likely they're amazed by what had just happened. And in the process, they are saying all kinds of nonsense things to the man, accusing him of being healed on the Sabbath. So they are taking offense at Jesus. And listen to the distinction, the difference between what the man said and what the Jews were saying. The man who was healed was emphasizing his healing. He was saying, the man who met me well, and on the other hand, the Jews were emphasizing the offense. The Jews were emphasizing the offense. Where is the man who told you to pick up your pallet and walk? We need to get him because he is breaking the law. And the man says, the man who did a good thing, the man who met me well. So you have these two groups of people saying different things and trying to emphasize different things about Christ. And yet we are told that the man who had been healed by the Lord did not know him. He did not know him. The Lord had healed the man and yet he did not know him because if Christ is not revealed to anyone, you will never know who Christ is. And the man only was able to point later on as we learn. He was only able to point back at Christ after Christ came looking for him. Jesus had to go to the man. And then it was Jesus who told the man who he was. Otherwise, he didn't even know that it was Jesus who healed him. And we see this picture many, many, many ways. And this is teaching us about the spiritual reality of what has happened to man and their spiritual abilities. Men cannot come to God by themselves. Men cannot come to Christ by themselves unless Christ comes, heals them, and gives them the command to rise and reveals himself to them. And in John 14 to 15... This is what John says. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Later, at some uncertain time, because we don't really know when this healing happened, what time it happened, but it sounds like from the reading of the story 
that this happened on this very same day. So later after the healing, at some unknown time, the Lord came to the man, the man that he healed and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The Lord says, you have been permanently healed. You have been permanently healed, but do not sin anymore. What does that mean? What does the Lord know about the life of the man that he should make a statement like that? It would seem from the statement of the Lord that the sickness of the man was due to a particular sin that he had done. We don't know how old the man was, but we know for sure that he is at least 38 years old because he has been in this condition for 38 years. But how did the Lord know that the man had sinned? How did he know that the man had sinned seeing that the Lord was not even born? Remember the Lord began his ministry when he was 30 years old. And the Lord at this time was most likely between 30 and 32 years old. And yet the man had been sick for 38 years. So before the Lord even was born, the man was already sick. The man was already sick. So how then did the Lord know that this was because of a particular sin that the man had done? That tells us that there's more to Jesus than just his human nature. He knew all things. He also knew that the blindness of the man who was born blind in John 9 was not because of a particular sin that he had committed. Because if you still remember the story, his disciples come to him and say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, not him and not his parents, but that the works of God may be performed in him. God may be glorified in his healing. So Jesus, by this account, is demonstrating to us his nature. He has supernatural knowledge. And that tells us again that Jesus is God. And what we also can learn from this is that sin does have consequences. Sin does have consequences. You have some issues in life that can come and complicate your life because of sin, as happened with this man. And the Lord kept the consequences on him in a real way, in a physical way, for 38 years. And yet, at the same time, the scriptures teach us that it's not always because of sin that men find themselves in very difficult circumstances. Life can just be difficult because God is working some other purpose that you and I don't even know. But the Lord says to the man, you go and sin no more. And this is very consistent with the gospel teaching that even when you have been justified, you don't carry on sinning because you have been justified. The man has been healed. And the Lord says, now you have been permanently made well. Do not go back and start doing the crazy things that you used to do. You are of the truth. You have to live your life according to 
what God has determined for his people. And he says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. How does Jesus know that there's something worse that can happen to him? And what is it that Jesus is talking about that will happen to him if he continues to sin? That answer, I think, is supplied in the later verses in John 5, verses 28 to 29. I'm just going to read it, but we'll work with it when we get there uh, in the next few sermons. This is what the Lord said in John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that is the worst thing that will happen to the man if he does not repent. So the Lord is saying, yes, I have healed you, but you need to repent from your ways. Otherwise, if you continue in your sin, guess what? There is a future judgment, resurrection of people that's going to happen. And if you continue on your path of sin, you are going to judgment. And yet, to those who repent, they will be resurrected to life. This man is a crazy guy. He really is a crazy guy. And he is willing, <laughs> he is willing to sell out Jesus. He is willing to sell out Jesus. John says, when, after Jesus has spoken to him, after Jesus has spoken to the man, the man decided to go to the Jews to tell them that, oh, guess what? I found the man who taught me to walk. I found him. I found him. Instead of going home, instead of just secretly disappearing, he goes back and says, guess what? I know the man who taught me to walk. For me, it would seem that he had some other interests that would have been affected had he not come to the Jews and told them the man who was responsible for it. He was afraid. He had to save his skin. He had to save his skin. But the Lord, of course, is in control of the whole situation, and he is the one behind it. Because he is going to take that opportunity of the confrontation to really talk about himself. To really raise the heat. And from John chapter 5, we're just going to see the hostilities between Jesus and the Jews. They just start rising. The heat really starts to get hotter and hotter and hotter. Because the Lord really wants them to put him on the cross. So we will not be surprised then by the reaction of the Jews. The reaction by the Jews was inevitable. It was the obvious and expected reaction, just as we saw in Matthew 12. The reaction was the same all the time. And so we are told by John in verses 16 to 17, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So the Jews were persecuting Jesus. 
at this point, we are not told what kind of persecution. It was most likely verbal abuse at this point. But we are told by John, and his wording is very helpful here. He says, because he was doing these things, that is a continuous tense, he was doing these things, the Jews were aware of all the other works that Jesus had done on the Sabbath. And so they were building and piling up evidence against him. The Lord kept healing people on the Sabbath. And that kept driving the Jews mad. And they had to get mad. Because they are sinners. They are darkness dwellers. They could not bear. They could not stand the works of light. So they had to put out the light if it was possible for them to do it. That's what they meant to do it. Now, that understanding of what is happening between Jesus and the Jews and the, and the Jews' lack of understanding of the Sabbath, we have the New Testament teaching on, on the Sabbath and what God actually was intending to teach us his people about the institution of the day of rest. What did the Sabbath stand for? And as I said, the two biggest controversies that Jesus had with the Jews were his works on the Sabbath and his claims that he was the Son of God. Those were the two major things. So the Jews did not understand what the Sabbath was all about and what God intended by it. It is Jesus who gave the Sabbath. They didn't get that either. It's Jesus who gave the Sabbath, and he came to not only fulfill it, but to interpret for us God's design for it. As we learned from Matthew 12, in the words of Jesus, on the Sabbath, God desired mercy and not sacrifice. On the Sabbath, God desired compassion towards other people. On the Sabbath, God desired justice and not the condemnation of the innocent by unjust rules, unjust man-made rules. And in Mark 2.27, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was meant for man's benefit and refreshment because it was a divine institution that had a bigger and larger purpose in view, the purpose of salvation. So Jesus comes and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I have the ultimate right as the Son of God to give you an interpretation of what it stood and what cannot be done or be done on it. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And of course, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. And as we're going to learn, they were not happy. And they decided to kill him for that. So then, the issue of the Sabbath is not about the meticulous observance of it as the strict Pharisees were having it. And as I said, even in our own day, we have some other very theologically loose 
religious groups who do not understand the gospel. But the issue here is a lack of understanding of the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you are bound to pick and choose whatever you want from anywhere in the Bible and say, this is what identifies us. But if you are being faithful to the teaching of the gospel, what has to identify you is what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. And not going back and saying, oh, we are the true Christians. Why? Because we worship God on Saturdays. And we know one of these groups is the, the Seventh-day Adventists. They argue that the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. And thus it is still morally binding on Christians and should be observed. And this is false. And this is false because they are failing to make a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. They are hybridizing and mixing the old and the new, which is always a recipe for disaster and confusion. But there's even a bigger problem. There's even a bigger problem when it comes to mixing and hybridizing things is that these people end up trusting what they do on Saturday than trusting in what Christ has accomplished. They make Saturday their distinction and their hope instead of Jesus, the one crucified and resurrected as their only hope of justification. But even more, they are foolish in the sense that they actually don't even observe the Sabbath. They are not even close to following the rules and regulations of the Sabbath as God had given it. They are not even close. They are not even doing 10% of it. They are breaking the Sabbath. If we have to go by the Old Testament rules, they are breaking the Sabbath every Saturday. They are breaking the Sabbath. But there's also something that they don't know. That the Sabbath, the Sabbath was part of the Ten Commandments, but also it was the token of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant, which gave us the law of Moses, with its 613 rules and regulations. 613. And if I give you one, just whichever one you want, you won't be able to stand by it. So they don't understand that the Sabbath and the law are a unit. You can't separate pieces of the law that you like and that you don't like. And only do the ones that you think you can do. The law comes as a unit. Because it's one covenant. And as James says in 2.10. For whoever shall keep the whole law. And yet stumble in one point. He is guilty of all. So if you miss one point. In trying to keep the Sabbath. You are guilty of everything that the law says. The law comes as a unit. This is very important. 
So we cannot allow men and women to come and cause confusion because they don't understand what the scriptures are teaching. But here what the Holy Spirit teaches us in Hebrews chapter 4. The Holy Spirit teaches us in Hebrews chapter 4 about the danger of unbelief and God's Sabbath. And he makes an interpretation for us what the Sabbath is all about. This is what he says. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they had did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who had. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The Hebrew Christians are here being exhorted not to follow the example of their fathers who died in the wilderness because of unbelief. He tells us of the true Sabbath, that God's people have to enter and how to enter it. Those who have believed in the good news of the gospel are those that enter into God's rest. The spiritual significance of the Sabbath then is not about the limitations that it imposed on people, but rather was about salvation. It was not about walking a Sabbath day journey or not picking up sticks. Rather, it was preparatory. It was showing people that there was indeed a true way of rest that was yet to be revealed. It was teaching people that they needed rest in a deeper way, in a spiritual way, and not just rest from gathering firewood, fetching water, or resting from menial activities. So the Holy Spirit argues and says in Hebrews 4 verse 4, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, now we are being given the understanding of the Sabbath. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Look at what 
God was resting from. He's resting from all his works of creation. And that is the pattern now that we have to follow in our understanding. And the Holy Spirit supplies what that rest was picturing for us. And again, in verse 5, in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience. So God's rest here is interpreted for us in a salvation sense. It is interpreted as being fulfilled in the work of salvation by Christ because that's what the writer of Hebrews is arguing, arguing that Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. Jesus Christ has perfected as the Son of God. He has perfected all those who are being saved. And the Holy Spirit also tells us how one is to enter into God's rest. How do you enter into God's rest? He says it is about hearing. It is about hearing the voice of God in the gospel and his invitation of you to Christ. That is how you enter God's rest. He says, he again fixes a certain day. That's in verse 7. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, listen to this, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the Sabbath rest is about salvation. It's about the work of God. It's about the work of Christ. It's not about your work. You don't get rest from your work. And that is why the invitation is there. For you to come and get real rest in what Christ has done. And by this God is saying, all men need to enter this rest. Because there's no other way that you can have rest other than entering into the rest that God is inviting you into. So the Sabbath keepers and what they're doing is not entering into God's rest. They're not understanding what God is saying. Listen to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Who is Joshua? Joshua is the one who took the children of Israel into the promised land. Remember Moses and Aaron were not able to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. Why? Because they had disobeyed the command of the Lord where the Lord had taught Moses to speak to the rock and Moses comes and he hits the rock after he had beat the rock before. And the problem was the rock that Moses hit with the rod was the type of Christ. And Apostle Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. And Moses had a very specific instruction from God that he was going to hit the rock only once. 
and then water was supposed to come out. And the water did come out. But the second time, when the children of Israel needed water, God instructed Moses to go speak to the rock and not to hit the rock. And guess what? Moses went and hit the rock. And he was beating Christ twice. You don't beat Christ twice. Christ is only punished one time. The next time you speak to Christ and you get life. That was the point. So, Joshua is the one, a type of Christ, who takes the children of Israel into the promised land. But guess what? He is taking the children of Israel who are under the law. If you take anybody into rest who are under the law, guess what? There's no rest for them. So the writer of Hebrews then says by the Holy Spirit, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Joshua could not give the children of Israel rest from their enemies. Why? Because they continued to sin. Why? Because they did not have a proper sacrifice that could remove their sin. So they continued in unbelief. And because they continued in unbelief, they died. God brought their enemies on them. And this is what God is saying. That if Joshua could not give the children of Israel rest, and those who were under him died in the wilderness, you also will not get rest unless you enter into the rest that God is inviting you by faith. The law cannot give rest. That is the point. This is why Joshua is being brought here in the argument because the people that Joshua was supposed to give rest were under the law. And the Sabbath was a provision of the law. The Sabbath was a provision of the law. So he is saying, if you really intend to go into the promised land and not have trouble from your enemies, you can't go under the law. Because why? Because the law will continue to condemn you. And when you get condemned, guess what? Your enemies are going to be on you. So what are our enemies? Who are our enemies? Sin, death. The devil, God's judgment, all these are your enemies. As long as the law is standing, it's going to continue to make the same kinds of claims on you. So you will never enter into God's rest. So how do you enter then God's rest? You have to go to Christ. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the law. So God seeing And knowing that Joshua and the law could not give these people rest, he spoke of another day. God never intended to give people rest by their observance to the law. That's why he spoke of another day. So he says in verse 7 to 10 again, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So for as long 
as you are alive, God only has one invitation. Today, come to Christ and enter into his rest. That's the only reason why you're still around. It's just for that invitation. It's for that invitation. Come to Christ and enter into his rest. Otherwise, there's no other way that you can ever get rest. And the word rest here, Sabbath, has also the idea of seizing and completion. Thus, the one who has come to Christ by faith has also seized and completed their work of salvation in him. God completed and seized his work of creation and those that need rest have to also seize from their own works as God seized from his. If you may want to picture it, God is inviting you to his house. If I invite you and say, okay, let's commune together next weekend, come to my house, and Sister Dassel decides to bring all her work from work with a laptop and just be working as soon as she gets here. She's like, Brother James, uh, where can I sit? I have work to do. And I'm busy cooking. I'm doing things. And the whole day, she's busy working. And tomorrow, she's busy working. God says, no, 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 no. You're not coming to my house to do your work. You're coming to my house to rest. If you have to come to my house, don't bring any of your works. Come and enter into my rest because in my house, everyone is rested from their works. Everyone has already been accepted by me on account of what Christ has done. So don't bring your silliness into my house. And so he says, there's no rest to be had from our own works. Unless you rest your acceptance by God in Christ alone, this is saying to all sinners that they cannot work enough, long enough, good enough to be accepted by God. And unless God provides a way for you to actually rest, you shall never rest. People in hell never rest. But in Revelation, we are told that they don't sleep. There's no rest there. And even picture it in your own day-to-day life. You have not stopped doing laundry since you started wearing clothes. You have not stopped doing laundry. You have not stopped cooking and cleaning the house. You clean it in the morning, you clean it in the afternoon. You clean it before you go to bed. Guess what? Before you leave the house, you clean again. And you're going to keep cleaning. And that's a picture of what men are spiritually saying you can never come to the end of this. As long as you live, you're going to continue to find yourself working and realizing that all that effort is not commending you before God to be accepted by him. So God says, no rest for you. And by the way, I actually have a cousin by the name of no rest. 
Yes, I have a cousin called No Rest. <laughs> so there's no rest for sinners who try to approach God outside the rest that God has provided for them in Christ. So we have to seize, we have to seize from our works. And this statement is very clear. It is saying you can't mix and match the rest from your works and the rest that comes from God. Because if you are working, you are working to hopefully find some rest. You are saving some money here, some 401k here, that at some point that you may enter into the rest of your labor. And God says, no. That's not the kind of rest that you need for eternity. You need a different kind of rest. You have to enter into my rest. And I'll tell you how you enter into my rest. You enter into my rest by faith alone. And so the admonition in Hebrews 4.11, as we finish, is, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the admonition is, let us be diligent. That is, make haste. Put every effort. Strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall through disobedience. And what's the disobedience? The Hebrew Christians wanted to go back to the law. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't go back to the law. Because the law, as you all know, could not give rest to the children of Israel when they enter the promised land. If you are going to have rest, you have to come diligently strive to enter into the rest of Christ. And therefore, to continue to follow the Sabbath is to continue to follow the law and its disobedience. It's disobedience. It is to refuse entering into God's rest. Jesus Christ is the true Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And it is he, after having completed the works of all creation, remember what John told us in John 1, that all things were made through him, and there was nothing that was made that was not made by him. So him, when he finished all the works of creation, he rested. And when he came and finished the works of redemption, he rested. And not only that, he is inviting his people into the same kind of rest. And this the Jews did not get. And even in our day, as I said, there are a lot of foolish men and women who do not understand what God is teaching and are willing, are willing to persecute the Lord and God's people for picking up our pallets on the Sabbath. For stretching out our withered hands on the Sabbath. They are willing 
to persecute the Lord for healing and doing good on the Sabbath. And yet the gospel, the gospel has given us the freedom to pick up our pallets and walk on the Sabbath without being condemned. Why? Because we have entered into his rest by faith. We have entered into God's rest by faith. The issue here is about the completion and the perfection of the work of Christ for salvation. So in Colossians 2.16, this is what the Lord says. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So all those things are just shadows. They don't have any substance in themselves. All the substance that they pictured is found only in Christ. So because we know that the Lord says to you and I and all his people, rise, pick up your pallet and walk. Rise, pick up your pallet and walk into his rest. And walk into his rest. And those of us who have rested in Christ have entered into God's rest and it is well with our souls. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne as those who have entered and are entering the rest that you have given us in your Son, Jesus. We have rested from our works as you rested from your own works of creation. And yet our rest is not because of our completed works, but because of the completed and perfected work of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that you may bring the light of understanding to your people, that they may hear the invitation by the Holy Spirit for them to come to the rest that is in the gospel, that they may cease their working, they may cease from trying to impress you by their own doing. Because if anything, you are not pleased by anything which has not been done by your son or in your son. So Lord, we pray that you raise faithful men who can proclaim this gospel as simple and as easy as it sounds. It's not that easy and it's not that simple. For men stumble and millions, if not billions, are stumbling at this message of life. And yet we are here proclaiming these things by your grace. And Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray for all your people here at Berean. Our Lord, we ask for your grace to continue to uphold them by the truth of Christ and the truth of his gospel, that they may be conformed to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for all your people, those especially who are being persecuted for their faith, their faith 
of the gospel, the faith in Christ, especially in the Middle East and parts of North Africa. Lord, I pray that your grace may be sufficient for them, that you get them up with strength, that they may not revoke their testimony of Christ. Our Lord, just give them strength today. And we pray for all those of your people, wherever they're named, that they may continue to bear the light of the gospel and to want to hear the truth of Christ. Lord, we pray and thank you for this day. We pray for all blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.